Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that all of history marches to the beat of your drum. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you are, in fact, uh, bringing all of history to your predetermined conclusion. And as we look today at um, the final judgment of the unredeemed and then the beginning description of heaven and what it's going to some of what it will look like uh, in eternity with you that our hearts would long to be in that place that we would grasp firmly our citizenship which is in heaven help us to see you this morning in Jesus name amen last week we looked at the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign that is going to occur on this planet where Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron for a thousand years where Satan is going to be bound, he is going to be uh, rendered incapable of deceiving the nations during that time and you have a time of uh, where it's almost a return to Eden so to speak. Uh, sin is greatly diminished. Um, righteousness reigns. And yet you have what ultimately will be millions upon millions who even under those perfect, some almost perfect conditions will still reject Christ. They will reject his rule. You know, what we will not have that man to rule over us. And then there is a great, Satan is released and he immediately does what he does. What, what is Satan's primary focus in life? He's a deceiver. And as soon as he's released from the abyss, he goes to deceive the nations once again. And there's one final uprising which is put down immediately and you have all of the redeemed are gathered to God and now Satan is uh, laid hold of and he is consigned to the lake of fire and again if you want to uh, if you want to have a verse where you it you can look at and say listen there's no such thing as, as annihilationism go to Revelation 20 the beast and the false prophet have already been in the lake of fire for a thousand years and they are still there when Satan is consigned there as well. And so the smoke of, their, the smoke of that fire is going to rise before God forever and ever. So chapter 20, let's pick up in verse 21, excuse me, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so here again, you have, there is a distinction. And the distinction comes down to this book. If your name is in it, you're in heaven. If your name is not in it, you're in the lake of fire. 
It is that simple. It is that final. And so here we have, it's time, this is judgment for those who have continued to rebel against God. Now this judgment occurs before this great white throne. The one who sits upon it is the Lord Jesus because it is to him that God has given the authority to judge. He is going to judge the living and the dead. It's interesting here that you have this great white throne and it's kind of in nothing because heaven and earth have fled away. Now this idea of fleeing away, we've seen this word before in this book. Uh, the, the Greek word is fugo, which we would get our word fugitive from. And you'll remember it from back in the trumpet judgments when you had the locust that had the power to sting. And remember that men longed for death but weren't able to die. They wanted to, but death fled from them. That's the same word. They couldn't die, no matter how much they wanted to. And the idea here is that as it's presented here, and we're gonna see more of this in chapter 21, the idea here is that heaven and earth have fled. We're gonna see in uh, chapter 21 that they have passed away. And we'll get into that a little more in, in 21. The bottom line here is there's no place to hide. There's no earth. There's no heavens. So you don't have uh, the atmosphere. You don't have the, um, the galaxies. You don't have any of that. All of that is gone, gone. And so all that's left for these people is a throne and them in front of it. So in Hebrews, when it talks about all things are open, naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, that's, that's, this is really the epitome of that. The, it's them and it's them alone. Mom and dad aren't there. Your homies that you've run with over the years, they're not there. It's you before God. And God's got records. He has perfect records. Now records in this kind of a setting would have perhaps another word to describe them. What would that word be? Evidence, evidence exactly. God's got evidence. And notice this is a very one-sided trial. There's a prosecutor and judge rolled up into one. There's no defense attorney. There's no advocate. There's no one to stand with the accused. And as the accused stands there, out come the books. And in those books are written and recorded all of the evidence that will condemn the accused. And in addition to those books, there is the single book. And that's really the one, and frankly, for determining your residency for eternity, that book is the only one that matters. If you're not in the book of life, you go to the lake of fire. So what's the purpose of the books? What's, why is it that God has a record of the sins of the unredeemed? Justification. Justification. So, you did this, therefore. 
Okay, so you did this, all of these things here. So your name is not in the book of life. Now what we're talking about is sentencing. How much torment? To what degree? And endless day and night. So the point is, is that, is hell going to be more horrific for some than for others? Yes, it will be. Yeah, no, no, no credit for time served, you know, not, none of that. No good behavior. In fact, frankly, what's going to happen in hell? Those who are unredeemed are going to, they've been rebellious. What are they going to do in hell? Still rebel. That's what was in their hearts in this life. It's going to continue in the next. Now, there are some, by the way, who we would look at and we would think, in fact, we even have a cultural saying for this, right? There's a special, there's a special place in hell for people who do such and such, right? It's going to burn a lot harder for you because you've done such and such. Now, the type of things that we would look at in that regard are probably very different than how God looks at it. If I'm unredeemed, heading to the lake of fire, I don't think I want to have been a false teacher. Someone who has helped lead people to that conclusion. God's not going to take kindly to that. And regardless, every idle word is recorded. Every sinful thought, every sinful act, they're all recorded. And there's no excuse. And so as they stand before this judge, they're condemned. Ellen. You know what else there is? Nothing up besides excuse. Blame shifting. Okay, Alan's point. There's no blame shifting. Exactly, right? No one is going to be able to look and say, you know what, the devil made me do it. Not going to happen. Nor are they going to be able to look and shift it to anybody else. A lot of contemporary secular counseling is based on what? It's not your fault. It's your dad. It's your mom. It's your environment. It's your circumstances. It's whatever, right? Yeah, because you're the victim. And at the end of the day, that's not the case. Yes, a statement which, so Alan's bringing up Ezekiel 18, uh, the, father ate the, the fathers ate the sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. And how did God like that statement? Well, he says, you're not saying that one anymore because you're going to realize what? It's you. It's you. This is what you have done. This is how you have thought. And after the judgment, death, Hades, and all that are in them go to the lake of fire where their judgment is going to last forever. Now, it's, I, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of appropriate today that we're looking at that considering we've got an example of an unrestrained fire burning not terribly far from here. And so it's like that forever. And right on the heels of this, of all the unredeemed being in the lake of fire forever, immediately on the heels of this, 
you have the incredible blissfulness of heaven. And so here again, you have this great contrast. There are these who are in hell, suffering agony forever. And then there are these who are going to be in the presence of God in the midst of an incredible environment forever. There's no in between. Richard. Right, so the comment is, is that you have uh, the lake of fire described as a place of where there's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth, and it's not just that. It's described as the place of outer darkness. It's dark. It's a place of isolation. Billy Joel does not have it right. You know, when he says... I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun, right? The idea for many is that hell is going to be a huge party, right? We're all together. We all kind of think the same. And, you know, it's an, it's an eternal kegger. It's isolation. You're trapped for eternity with the consequences of your rebellion. And again, it's everything that the words of Jesus when he talks about this place, it is a place of utter agony, torment, and anguish. And probably a touch of rage. And by the way, in hell, in the lake of fire, is that rage directed inward? Oh, the eternal fist is raised against God. That's why it lasts forever, because the rebellion never stops. And that is what we deserved and that is where we would be had we not been rescued by the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God. And so, again, the, I, I hope that one of the things as we're going through this that, that rises up in your heart is incredible, overflowing gratitude. Because we didn't escape this because of our smarts. Somehow we, you know, figured it out better than someone else. This would be us were we not rescued. All right, questions up to the end of chapter 20. Sam. Yes. Okay, so Sam is, is saying that last week I made a point that this is different from the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Uh, and, and, and how is that made? Because the sheep are already in heaven. The sheep are already removed. Um, this, is, this is simply the judgment um, for the dead. Now that probably is not... Um, Right. And, and, and again, his point is the judgment is the same. Um, they have already been set aside for this purpose. 
the unbelieving dead are, are basically held uh, in a holding cell waiting, awaiting this time. And so that's actually been going on for centuries to where they're being held for this. It's just this is where the, that sentence is finally being pronounced. Okay, the question is, where is the holding cell? And I don't know where that is. That's not specified. Now, um, you can, there's all kinds of speculation for that. I remember reading, uh, I think it was Henry Morris's commentary on Revelation many years ago now. Um, his interpretation of that was that the abyss uh, now, the abyss being different, the abyss being demon prison, the demon holding place, that's at the center of the earth. Um, where the grave, where Sheol and where Hades, which are, you know, Hades and Sheol are, are the Greek and the Hebrew terms, talking about the same place, you know, where the, where the unbelieving dead are held. Um, that's, that location is never specified. Uh, the question is, uh, the comment is made that they are judged uh, according to their deeds. What's the significance of that? Um, I think, again, that goes to the degree of punishment uh, for eternity for them. Some are going to be, um, perhaps may be more in ignorance than others. Uh, some have been very intentional. Some have been... Um, very blatant, knowing full well what they were doing and why they were doing it. And so I think you're going to have degrees of punishment in hell, but again, that's, uh, there's agony, I guess, and there's real agony. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the slightest, whoever gets the least sentence, so to speak, is still weeping, wailing, and gnashing their teeth. Yes? So, if a person passes away as a non-believer, do they ever have the opportunity to change that? Okay, the question is, if a person dies as an unbeliever, do they ever have an opportunity to change that? No. In a word. That is why you will find in the Scripture so many pleas, so many admonishments, so many uh, constantly over and over. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. It, the, the, when it comes to the gospel, uh, the Bible communicates that with the urgency of now, not for something down the road. Um, I'm sure that many in here have had the experience of uh, knowing somebody who has been a very blatant uh, rejecter of God in life. And they're coming to the end of life where, where death is no longer a hypothetical question, right? They've got cancer. They used to weigh 220, now they weigh 96 pounds. They're on hospice. They've got a hospital bed in their living room. They're not eating anymore. They've got, they're taking morphine. They're taking Ativan at the early, early stages. So you still have some lucidity. And yet, you go to, 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 to give the gospel to them one more time. And they blow you off again, just like they've done their whole life. Because the, the assumption on the part of many is that when I get to that point, I'll change my mind. And the fact of the matter is, no, you won't. There's no guarantee of that. Do some change at the very end? Yeah, apparently so. The thief on the cross has lived a, you know, a very rebellious life, and yet 
hanging on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So can it happen? Yes. Is that the norm? Nope. Not in my experience, at least. Brian? And to the point of after death, I'm not sure if Right. Brian's bringing up Hebrews 9.27, in as much as it is appointed for a man once to die and after that, the judgment. Um, there's no such thing as purgatory, all right? Purgatory got made up. So it's not like somehow down the road you get, a, you get another bite of the apple. And you know what? I sh- you know, there's no such thing after death of having, I should have had a V8 moment where you have the ability to change. And in fact, again, um, there's no reason to assume that you actually would. You know, it's interesting, when you go back to the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man in life has his pleasures and his ease, and now all of a sudden he is in the place of torment. Do you notice that he never said anything about changing his own ways? At no point does he do that. He asks for relief from his suffering. And then he says, you know what? Send someone back to my brothers so that they can avoid this place. At no time does he ever indicate Repentance. And so again, no. So at the end of the day, the choices that we make here in life are sealed at death. Yeah, that is your final answer. Okay. Any other questions? Did you want to say something? So Dave's bringing up a couple of points. Uh, He brings up Pilate when Jesus says to him, uh, the fault is, is more with those who brought me than with you. So there's a degree there of guilt. There's a greater sin. And also, when it comes to rewards, there are grades of rewards. There are some who are going to be rewarded more than others. And so it applies on both sides there. However, again, the, 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 the underlying fact of that is that there's no getting over the fulcrum here. If you are unredeemed, there's degrees of punishment over here, but you can never get over this to get over to the redeemed side. Same with the unredeemed. There are some who are literally going to get in by the skin of their teeth. Their works were done with horrible intentions. They were proud that was about, you know, for whatever reason. And so some are, you know, their works are going to burn. We find that in 2 Corinthians where it talks about, uh, the, you know, where believers and their works are judged. And so there are going to be some who have, have more credit to their, uh, their works were more acceptable to God. The gold, the silver, the precious stones versus the wood, hay, and the stubble. But at no time do you cross from one place to the other. Susie.
So the, the question is, you have often at the end of life when uh, someone's body is, is shutting down and uh, they become uncommunicative. You, you can't carry on a conversation with them. And again, you're, you're, you're sharing the gospel with them. You know, is it possible in, the, in that situation that a person can respond to God without being able to actually voice something that we would be able to understand? Well, I certainly hope so. I do. Been there too. And so what do you do with people in that circumstance? You speak the gospel to them. You read to them. You pray with them. You do all of those things because I don't know. But frankly, it's no different than in life when somebody can respond to me, right? I cannot affect that change in their heart. Can't do it as much as I would like to. That's not a power that I have. What can I do? I can speak God's truth. I can live it before people. But especially in those moments. And again, I You know, the point here is why leave it to the last minute? Don't, uh, Sue Carlton used to have a saying, and it didn't originate with her, I've heard from other places. If I were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? And the point that Dave was making, why leave it to the last moment to have people wondering, gee whiz, I wonder if he's in. Have the fruit of a life that demonstrates the power of God and the work of God in your heart, in life, so that people would be able to look and go, as you know, and that, when that day comes, when you guys are looking down on me and saying, my, don't he look natural? In that day, I do not want there to be a question in your mind as to whether or not I lived for the king. Okay? So, look live in such a way and if you are unredeemed it now I, as i look around okay <laughs> the risk of being getting into trouble here when jesus looked around at his disciples and said one of you is going to betray me they didn't stand up judas i knew it was you right lord is it me Live, if you're here and you're unredeemed, repent now before you leave here today. A couple years ago, I investigated a fire where a woman was killed. She was on hospice for cancer. Earlier that day, she had met with her family for them to be able to say their last goodbyes. She expected to die in a few days. Even somebody who has an expectation as to when their death will occur, you don't know that. Pardon me? Oh, yeah, 9-11 today. There were a lot of people who went to work in the World Trade Center who did not expect to die that day, right? So again, today's the day. Because once, once your eyes close in death, that's it. There's no mulligans. There's no workarounds. There's nothing else. It's fixed. Andrew. Instead of waiting to the last second, thinking that you might have more time, why wouldn't you turn to Christ in a way that 
Well, okay, so the question is, you know, why wouldn't you? Well, you're not, you're unregenerated, you're blind and you're deceived. Right? You know, the command is to, is to repent, to turn, and to give God glory. And yet, and yet, again, those who are unredeemed are selfish. It's all about them. And frankly, we all give ourselves a lot more credit than what we really deserve when it comes to our insight, our knowledge, and our wisdom, especially if people are unregenerate. What they think they know, they really don't, Greg. So uh, Greg's comment is, you know, again, it's uh, people are relying on works to be able to accomplish something. Um, you know, it might be helpful if instead of the word deeds, you substitute a different word. Fruit. Fruit. There are the deeds of unrighteousness are demonstrations, that's the fruit of an unrepentant heart. Deeds of righteousness is our fruit of a redeemed heart. And so again, they're being judged and Christians are going to be judged not for um, where, where your eternal residence is going to be, but all of our works are going to be judged as to were they done out of a selfish motivation? Were they done from a righteous motivation? But again, the, the, the idea here is that you have the fruit, the deeds of the flesh, right? The fruit of the flesh, and you have the fruit of righteousness. And so the, the fruit doesn't get you in. The fruit is the evidence of what kind of tree you are. And so, if you're redeemed, you, have, you can have good fruit. If you're not redeemed, you cannot produce good fruit. Lori. Okay, so the comment is, uh, is hearkening back to the, the parable of the workers where some were, were hired early, they worked all day long, and others were brought in literally at the 11th hour, and yet they ended up with the same reward. Um, and yes. And so, and again, that's God's grace. You know, at the end of the day, I'm going to be grateful that I, that I got to be there. And so, anyway. All right. Chapter 21. So you come out of, you come out of this incredible judgment. 
And then you come into this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so again, there's no after these things. We've already had the last of the after these things. That was at chapter 19, verse 1. And so here we're going in. This is just a continuation of basically the same thing that John has been exposed to. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now there is... um, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but there's question as to, okay, is this basically where the, where the earth and the heaven are getting a do-over? Are they getting a makeover? Or is this something that is entirely new? And you can get into all kinds of things because there's two words in Greek for new. And one, uh, if, you, if you look in the lexicon, it would say this is more of a qualitative new. And this word over here, uh, deals with more of a temporal new. It's you know more relevant perhaps to time. The problem is, is that the words in several locations in the New Testament are used interchangeably. And so, for instance, when you have um, Paul, when he is uh, taught, speaking of putting off the old man, being renewed in your mind, and putting on the new man. In Ephesians, he uses one word for new. In Colossians, he uses the other. They were interchangeable. The writer of Hebrews, when he's talking about Christ being the mediator of the new covenant, same thing. He uses both words because he speaks of the new covenant on multiple occasions. He uses both words to describe the new covenant. And then you get to Jesus who tells the story of the, uh, you know, you don't put new wine in old wineskins, right? You put new wine into fresh, new wineskins. Both words are in the same verse. And so I don't think that there's something in here that, you know, somehow makes it to where, you know, I think we may be trying to split hairs that don't need to be split. And so the idea here, in verse 1 we see that the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now this idea of passing away, it's a word that's actually used almost 120 times in the New Testament. It means to depart, to leave. And so you see on many occasions, Jesus departed and went to the mountain to pray. That's this word. And so you have this idea, you know, somebody left. Now, Jesus didn't depart to go to the mountain, and that was a permanent, you know, end of the deal. You know, it's now a fixed state after that. Yet, here, the same word is used, and when I say the same word, I mean in the same voice, tense, mood, all of that. It's used down further when he talks about Other things have passed away. Down in verse 4, where there's no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. Now, in fact, let's just read that. uh, There's no longer any sea. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, in verse 4, when those things have passed away, is that temporary or is that permanent? That's permanent. Praise God for that. That's permanent. They're gone, and they ain't coming back. That's one of the things that makes heaven heaven. So the idea of the first heaven and the first earth, I think that there are some pretty significant changes to the new earth that would basically say there's there's good uh, evidence that this... uh, 
Some commentators put it that back in uh, chapter 20, when the heavens and the earth flee away, that that is the uncreation. God spoke this into existence with his word, and he uncreates it so that he can make it new. In fact, we're going to see later in chapter 21, behold, I am making all things new. And so uh, in verse 1, you have the first heaven, the first earth pass away, and there's no longer any sea. Now, how much of our earth is covered with water? 70%. And do we have to have, is it necessary under the, the conditions in which we live, is it necessary to have that much water? Yeah, it is. And in fact, you can see that there is a relationship between uh, many of the things that are around us. What governs the tides of the sea? The moon. So you have lunar cycles and, and you have the, uh, the seas, the tides rising and falling based on the relationship there with the moon. And uh, in fact, that is precise enough, right, that you can calculate uh, tide charts for any day because it's that fixed. And so you have the relationship, you have, we have a water cycle that the planet is dependent upon, right? And so you have these things, and yet in the new earth, there's pretty radical changes. So there's no sea. Now later, we're going to find that there are some other changes. So right now, there's no sea. Now, in these first few verses, you see, John says, I see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So from a distance, he is seeing this city coming down from God. So what is this city? This is so cool. What is this city? Okay, it's the New Jerusalem, but... I'm sorry. Okay, the original. Cherie, what was it? The tabernacle of God. Okay, the place that God prepared for us. So John 14, when Jesus says, I am going in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I mean, if I go to prepare this place for you, I'll come again and receive it to myself that where I am there you may be also, right? Now, the idea here is that God has a house and there are a bunch of places here in this house where we get to live with him. The new Jerusalem is that house. And so when you talk about heaven, when you talk about uh, us being with God and with Christ for eternity, this is that place. So if you want to know where your future address is, that's it. And it is already made. He's made it, and he's just waiting to deliver it. And he'll talk about that more. So here he's seeing it from a distance. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Why are the words faithful and true? Because it's God speaking and God is what? Faithful and true. He's faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. <laughs> Jesus on the cross said, it's finished. What was finished? 
Okay, so the, the comment was made is that, um, in fact, now I can't even remember how you said it. The idea was, okay, in his coming, it's not just that his work on the cross was done. It was everything from his incarnation to his, his holy life, establishing that he, in fact, was fulfilling the laws that made him an appropriate sacrifice for us to where he could stand in our place and then going through the cross to where his blood has been shed and so it's able to pay for our sin. When he gets to the point, all right, it's done. Job accomplished. Mission accomplished. God looks now. It's done. Sin has come. Sin has gone. My redeemed are here. The rebels have been sentenced. I've made everything new. Every contaminant, every stain, every pollution from sin is gone. Here on out, everything is as it should be. Nothing left to accomplish. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, from everlasting to everlasting, and at the end of the day, everything has gone exactly according to plan. Everything. There's never been a need for a plan B. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, you ever been really thirsty? I mean, really thirsty. There's a place up here called Royal Gorge. You can hiking up out of there. The fishing's great, but the, the hike is brutal. It's brutal. There's a seasonal spring, a seasonal creek, that if you're early in the summer, there's going to be water in that creek near the top. You've gone through all your water on the way up, all right? You cannot imagine the disappointment when you get to the seasonal creek, and it ain't seasonal. It's not there. And you still have a mile and a half, two miles to go. It's all uphill, every bit. And since the fire went through there a few years ago, you don't have shade cover anymore. And I can remember getting up to the top. I'd drink water out of a dog bowl, all right? It, it, and, and you're hoping that you had the foresight to leave a cooler with something in it at the top and then pray that you haven't lost your car key until you be able to get into it, all right? It's just that idea that, you know, when you have that drive, you will sell just about anything in order to be able to get relief. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they're going to get satisfied. There's a whole river in heaven that's just for that. And so the one who thirsts after righteousness, he's going to be filled. And he who overcomes will inherit all these things. The idea of overcoming, have we seen that in this book? Where, where have we seen the idea of overcoming? The churches. Every one of them ends up with, he who overcomes, this will be his reward. And in fact, those who do not overcome, why didn't they overcome? Because they weren't what? They weren't washed. They weren't redeemed. What's one of the evidences, in fact, that you are, in fact, a believer? You persevere. 
you overcome. So, in, in a very real way, have you and I been adopted by God? Yes, we have. Do we enjoy the full benefits of that adoption right now at this very moment? Not yet. Not yet. There we will. Because there we will be enjoying our inheritance. There we will be in practice joint heirs with Christ. It is amazing to me. Jesus paid the price. Jesus was the one who left heaven, who humbled himself to become a man, to be humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did everything. And I get to be a fellow beneficiary with him of something that is rightfully his and his alone. And yet God makes us joint heirs with him. If indeed we suffer with him. And again, which leads back to what? Overcoming, right? The idea of suffering is holding in there when in the face of opposition. Again, these things all fit together. So here again, you have this, this incredible bliss, right? There's heaven. There's no more death. There's no more crying, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, and there's all this great blessing for those who are here, and yet there are those who are on the outside. There are those who are never going to experience this. And those are listed too. But for the cowardly, that word this is an adjective. The noun form of this word is what Paul wrote to Timothy. God has not given us the spirit of timidity or cowardice, but of love and faith and discipline. And so the idea here being the cowardly, those are the ones who do not stand. These are the ones who cave. You remember in the story of the soils where um, these, there's some who hear the word and they rejoice and they're, they're, they, they seem to momentarily have some type of response to the message of the truth. And yet, all of a sudden now, when you have the heat of the day arise, when all of a sudden you have the opposition come and the you've got to make a choice. Do I stand? Do I fold? The cowardly fold. They don't overcome. And therefore, they're not in. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, that's the idea of being polluted. Murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. The idea there of liars, the fakes, the pretenders, the tares. Remember, what's a tear? T-A-R-E. It's a look-alike. It's an imposter. It's a fake. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John has seen the holy city from a distance. Now he's going to get a guided tour. And we're going to stop here for today. Questions for up to now?
Okay. The question is, when the earth passes away, is that what is referred to in 2 Peter 3? Yes. And so the idea there, Peter's, you know, talking about uh, the things are going to be burned up with fervent heat. Right? Now, and by the way, how does Peter leave that? When Peter talks about, hey, everything that we can see here, this is all going to be burned up with fervent heat. What was the consequence or the intended consequence of that knowledge? What kind of manner of person ought you to be? And we're going to talk about this. Well, the idea originally was we were going to talk about this at some length next week. Now so that we have to do most of chapter 21, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. The idea here, and, and this is frankly, this is the reason for the book. This is the reason for studying this book. It's nice to have an idea as to what is coming eschatologically. But the real reason for studying this book, it ought to impact how we think, how we act, and how we live. There should be a connection between what we know to be true, what God has revealed to be true, and our response to that, coming into conformity with that. And so the idea here is not just to, you know, gee whiz, I can give you a timeline for the end. If you can, great. Great. What is more important is what are you doing with that? If all it does, my, my dad used to have a, a rather descriptive term. And I'm, I'm wondering since I'm on tape. <laughs> he talked about being spiritually constipated. The idea that there's, you, you accumulate truth and you accumulate knowledge and you do all of this stuff what are you doing with it? Accumulating knowledge means nothing unless it's impacting how you live, right? Spiritual belief is always, is always manifested how? Spiritual Belief is always demonstrated by action. Always. Always. And so again, how is this impacting us? How does the, how does the you know, the revelation of, of Christ, the revelation of the end of his work, our belief in that is shown by hearts and lives that are brought into conformity with his truth. Again, it's demonstrated by deeds. It's demonstrated by actions. Those actions don't get me into heaven, but they absolutely demonstrate the work of God in my life, in your life. And I hope that you're doing that as we've gone through. What we're talking, what, what, what is revealed in chapters 21 and 22, that's your passport. Our citizenship is here. This, the passport of my life does not bear the, the, the seal of America. It bears the seal of heaven. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing that we who deserve the lake of fire would instead receive the new Jerusalem, a place of indescribable beauty that first and foremost, being able to be in your presence forever. No more barriers, no more separation, no more fear, no more 
anything that would separate. And having it that way forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Father, thank you that this was all your doing, that this was, this was all your conception. And that even today in, a, in the midst of a culture that is so upside down, that is so anti-you, that you are not ruffled in the least. The nations can rage and you laugh at them because they constitute no threat. You're the one who is almighty. You're the one who is all-knowing, who is all-wise, all-powerful. And Father, we worship you because you are God. And we are grateful that you have extended compassion and mercy to us and grace. Father, help us to be about your business that we would be proclaiming your truth. We have no idea who your elect are. So help us to preach to any and all men that they may escape the wrath that is to come and instead experience all the blessings and the benefits of being your child. Help us to do that today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.